this is going to cause some disturbance. But if Niron can read the Bible because the words are too small, but if you can read, can I encourage us to pass a Bible along this morning? I'm going to give, um, we're going to be looking at Matthew's gospel a little bit later, bits of it that you might want to look up, and also Leviticus. I will give page numbers for those for whom Leviticus isn't your first stop, port of call. Um, but we're going to look at a few passages in Leviticus, and you just need to check whether um, your understanding is the same as mine. So Matthew 5, if you want to, I think it's page 969. I'm not going to tell you, you might guess what bit we're looking at to start off with. We're going to look at a few different things in Matthew 5. Very, very quickly, we're going to come back to Matthew 5 in the summer. So you'll hear me say this quite a lot, and they're more than words on a page, but our purpose as a church is to encounter, celebrate, and share God's transforming love. And these, uh, this is a living intention. It's not just a convenient strap line. Today, my focus in particular is on the Bible, biblical interpretation. And the theme, which I've changed, is transformed by the Bible as we encounter Jesus. Transformed by the Bible as we encounter Jesus. Both and. We believe that Scripture is God's revelation, revelation of God's Word, like God speaking to us. How amazing is that? And you'll be familiar with um, oft quoted words from 2 Timothy um, 3 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God, that's us, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I was listening to a podcast that just popped up yesterday as I was driving. I couldn't switch it off. They started with this scripture and one that I'm going to quote later. And I didn't tear up. But the emphasis of scripture is that it's God breathed. Just imagine that. God's inspired word that has come to us through human beings that has been discerned amongst lots of people that this, these bits stay and they're not to be changed. I'd just like to pray now about that notion of the breath of God. Lord, your breath, we sing in hymns here. We ask for it to sweep through us. Lord, we thank you this morning that your breath inspired those human beings that wrote down your holy word. We ask, Lord, that you would breathe into us and give us understanding. 
that you'd breathe into us and give us a will to read, mark, inwardly digest, and to live out your holy word. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So that was a bold prayer, wasn't it? That's what we want, I hope. Sometimes we don't know that we want that, though. And that's part of the problem with uh, and the challenge of the church. Just a quick story to start off with. My son, who's ordained, please pray for the other three children who aren't ordained. And <laughs> not that they're not ordained, but they're not yet card-carrying full followers of Jesus, even though they've been confirmed. This is complete aside. Like my heart breaks for folks in a similar situation, those that come to church um, and maybe they come on their own and those who long for that. That's a complete aside, but as a church, we need to pray these prodigals in. The son of mine who is following the Lord Jesus as best he can with his help went to Lambeth Palace just recently. He is ordained and apparently I think there's a library there and he came across something that was referencing the slave Bible. Has anyone got a copy of the slave Bible or know anything about it? Now the slave Bible was um, printed in London for missionaries in 1807, but the thing about the slave Bible is that it's got massive chunks missing. So there's whole tranches of the Old Testament didn't make the cut. There's bits in the New Testament that didn't make the cut. That's because they didn't want slaves to read about Moses, who went and rescued people um, uh, in Egypt and took them to a promised land. He didn't want to empower the people to... So the missionaries went Christian missionaries went with a form of a Bible that would uh, recreate and preserve oppression. And I just sometimes wonder whether our interpretation of Scripture does exactly the same. We probably don't call it a slave Bible, but if society would have its way, um, cancel culture would probably cut bits here and cut bits there, and we've got our own preferences, and we don't like that bit. It doesn't fit with my lifestyle and how I choose to do my week. And we'll turn to this a little bit later. But maybe all of us, if we're honest, with our preferences, we've got a form of a slave Bible, wrong ideas and wrong thinking that we've just absorbed unchallenged. And there's bits that are a bit uncomfortable that are missing. We'll sort of forget that bit. So that's just a thought. But we can't ignore or remove uncomfortable bits, come up with our own interpretations of Scripture, and this is hard, and I'll come on to it, uh, that conforms to our preferred patterns of living rather than God's. Now we're in an age where so many different ideas have been shared. I want to celebrate the religious freedom that we have. Christian solidarity worldwide help to protect that. But sometimes our freedom can turn into a different form of oppression if some dominant ideas rule us and rule society. It's a fine balance, isn't it? We need to be aware of the different non-biblical influences and philosophies that shape our thinking and from time to time dictate our laws. 
It's sometimes hard, I'm not the only one, to know who and what to believe. Um, <laughs> it's only in the last few years we've got post-truth, haven't we? Uh, I'm going to get angry now. Presidents that come out with complete and utter nonsense. And would argue that black is white. We're in a cultural age where historic norms have been challenged. There's developments in science and technology, ethical challenges that we have to cope with now that weren't known about or written about in Scripture, yet we need to come to Scripture to give us some framework to be able to understand God's ways of dealing with some of these things. However, also, when we read the Bible we also find clear, wise and timeless truths about life and death, about human nature, about suffering. And I know today there's folks come into church with extreme challenges to their health and suffering. Where do we turn to for comfort what about sin and forgiveness, particularly when we've been on the wrong end of the sin? Money and relationships, creation, care. There's wisdom to be found about war and justice and immigration and asylum. But above all, we learn about the God of love. The love of God and his invitation for us to follow his pattern. Now, the Bible's not like a computer program that we can give. Um, we just type it in and we get the perfect answer every time. It's not that simple. I got myself in trouble at the earlier service when I said, Hey, Siri, hey, Bible. And my iPad and my computer kicked off, basically. So I've, I've cancelled them, basically. Because I was asking, it started playing some music on my iPad. I didn't ask for that at all. Um, but we can't ask, um, we can't come to the Bible like that. It's, it's hard work. We need to be able to discern that there's many layers of interpretation and understanding. That said, there's some things that I think are just so plain that are not disputable, and we just need to work out what those are. Sometimes it's hard to find the answer when emotions uh, are high or the stakes are very high. Now, the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to look at Scripture rather than just to rely on our own opinions and preferences to form our doctrine and practices. But when we do so, it's meant to be in grace and truth, both and, not either or. Biblical understanding informs our Christian creeds, our teaching, our worship, our everyday living. It gives us general principles um, that are more than enough and sufficient to help us to live life in a godly way. 
Some of it's written with a specific purpose, a particular time. It helps us to know why it was written, when it was written, and then to ask. And I think always, it's not that was very interesting. It's not about information. What is the relevance of it for us today? What are the timeless truths that are contained? Some of it makes uncomfortable reading and needs careful handling to unlock the spiritual principles. This helps me, though, that when I come to Scripture in prayer, its primary purpose or my primary purpose for doing it is all these other things are quite important is to encounter and be transformed by the love of the living God. So I don't see the point in going to this as a textbook. I go to my Bible for relationship. And I ask God to help me. John 5, 39. You don't need to turn to it. It shapes my approach to Scripture. And the people, Jesus was having difficulties with the teachers of the law that knew their scriptures inside out. They'd seen his miracles and heard his teaching. They were very threatened by him. And he said this to them, John 5, 39. Imagine him saying this to me. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Ouch. So I I can have a lot of information. Like we can do all our Bible studies and everything, and we can have it all lined up. But Jesus is saying you need to come to me. Have relationship with me. Be transformed by me through the reading of my word. He is the word made flesh who made his dwelling amongst us. Now, whatever I say today, and you have to bear with me, please, please don't forget that scripture points to encounter and life, a life transforming relationship with Jesus. So you just need to hear that. And everything else, I don't know whether it's wallpaper, it's quite important. It is quite important, but the main thing is relationship. Today, the core passage that we're going to look at to start off with is from uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, page um, 969. Matthew um, five to, chapters 5 to 7 um, contains some of the most important parts of Jesus' teaching. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And in the summer, we're going to come back to some of this teaching. Um, and just to say, before I read the passage for today, when we interpret Scripture as Christians, I believe it must be through the lens of who we believe Jesus to be. So unless it's got a Jesus reference point, or it makes sense in the light of who Jesus is, then I'm not sure. I think it's got secondary value. Let's put it that way. So, Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's a bold statement. I've come 
I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who has sets aside uh, one of the least of these commands, I see a slave Bible coming on, and teaches others, according to, uh, uh, teaches others accordingly, will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's quite a lot there. It's a powerful thought that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. But to fulfill it, he takes it to a completely new level. When Jesus talks about the law, he's referring to what we understand as the Old Testament scriptures, which he'd have learned as a child. Picture him in the temple um, when he went missing from his parents. He just knew so much about it, even at a young age. The law was the core teaching about how the people of God had to organize their lives, their community, their worship. They so, so this is kind to them, the Pharisees, the teachers, they so, so wanted to get it right. They tried really hard, studied really, really hard. But as hard as they tried, and whatever they did, it could never be enough. And you hear in society at the moment this philosophy about being our best selves. If any of you have achieved that, let me tell you this morning, it's not good enough to be anywhere near the holiness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We just can't do it on our own. The Pharisees can't do it on their own. We can't do it on our own. We need Jesus. The first, um, so Matthew 5.20 says, this is just sort of um, reiterating that point, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is um, like they were doing their very best. They were trying their very hardest. And we could try all we could and still not surpass them. But it's whack, whack, oops, sorry to everyone who tries to find a pathway to God on that trajectory without his help. Now, there are different laws and interpretation of the law. Some of you might remember or did in your small groups the Bible course. I don't know whether uh, we did it a while ago. And I'm nicking three of my headings from that, so I don't want to confuse you. Um, but they identified three categories of law. Um, some of them have had their day and fulfilled. Some of them are fulfilled in Jesus and some of them continue. So we're going on a journey today, and you can decide with me what bit goes and what bit stays and what bit is taken to a new level. So there's civil law, there's ceremonial law, and there's moral law. A bit of a spoiler, uh, we don't need the first two in the same way, but moral law stays with us. The civil laws which were given to the people of Israel. To, they were given so they'd live well in society. 
um, at that particular time. See uh, Deuteronomy. You'd have to look it up now, um, chapters 19 to 26, for some examples. Um, the needs for society change. So we're no longer bound by some of those laws, but there are some transferable principles. Catherine gave me this one. Cities of refuge. Um, just for example, uh, you accidentally kill someone on the way to church this morning. Um, in the Old Testament, there would be a city that you could go for refuge, which you wouldn't get what you deserved um, at that time, and it would be a safe haven. Now, we don't have such places, and hopefully none of us have done that on the way to church, but if we had, we have a legal system whereby you might be protected in some way if um, it could be proven that you didn't have the premeditated desire to kill someone on the way to church. And... Um, so um, it talks without malice or a forethought. There are ceremonial laws, Leviticus chapters 11 to 15, to do with ritual cleansing and the foods we eat and the sacrificial system that dealt with sin. Leviticus 17 has a list of uh, forbidden foods. Um, apparently... Rare steaks are off the menu for the people at that time in that particular place, which I just need to confess this morning. I had a steak last night, and the only sin was that it wasn't rare enough. But in, in those days, blood was a symbol of life. Your lifeblood, it had special meaning, and it was involved in the sacrificial system. But with Jesus, he became the once for all sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. All we need, which is good news for goats and lambs and cows. Hallelujah. Then there's the moral laws, which affect relationships, sin and forgiveness. And these ones, when they go into the category, they they stay, and I think Jesus takes it up a level or two. They include the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Uh, we summarize them every week at 8 o'clock. You'll be able to remember with me, love the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors at yourself. Many churches, and I looked around, whether there's a design flaw in this church, but many churches have them on the walls along with the Lord's Prayer so we don't forget them. We can't use cancel culture to get rid of any of the Ten Commandments. They remind us that we must have no other gods above God. There should be no idols, nothing that we set a hobby or people or anything that's more important to God. Uh, keeping the Sabbath so hard in our busy culture, we overwork. God decided that he would rest on the seventh day, I'm trying to learn how to do that well. These are a little bit easier, aren't they? And we know, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery or covet. Although the Ten Commandments um, have timeless relevance, we need to discern, discern the laws that can be dispensed with 
that have had their day, I'd like to argue that some of the principles, however, haven't had their day. So look with me, if you will, um, to page 121 in your Bibles, Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19. Just to weigh in, verse 2, Leviticus 19, verse 2, God says, be holy because I'm holy. As I've already said, you, you just can't do this. Your best self is not good enough to fulfill this law. We need Jesus to do that. Verse 4, I've touched on it already. Don't make or worship idols. And that's anything that's more important than God. It doesn't have to be a religious image. It can be a hobby, although hobbies are good. It can be a person, although God and we love people. But it's anything that we make more important than God. So we can idolize our sporting activities and idolize our families. They are not more important to God. And if you get them in the wrong way, place, we have a problem. So that's a law about our idols that we keep. How about harvesting? I don't know if any of you have got a big enough garden to do harvesting in at all. But verse 9 says, don't reap to the edge of your field or garden. Um, this is a civil law for that particular time and in that particular place. But I believe that principle can be reapplied. So we're not to take it literally. But I think it's a word maybe for big business and powerful government. Not to plunder all the world's resources, but to leave some for others. For the poor and the powerless. Verse 19, I'm going to get you to check your labels of what you're wearing today in your clothes. Verse 19, just to see if we get struck down. Don't wear clothing with two types of material. But this is a civil law for a particular time and a particular place. But if I want to... Thinking about clothing, this is an aside, but I think God might have a word or two for the fashion industry about their ethics and their environmental impact, how much they pay their workers, how they pollute maybe the rivers. But that's been the case, tanners by rivers for ages. That's not never been good, the shoemakers, has it, for pollution. It's an age-old problem. But few would think today that we'd break principles of God's holy laws if we wear clothing that has cotton and wool mixed in with some stretchy synthetic fabric. That's okay. Back to Matthew 5, page 969 and 970. 
Jesus, unsurprisingly, doesn't do away with the law about murder, but ups the stakes, actually, to suggest that um, murder has the same root as some of our anger, not all of our anger. Uh, I suggested a sort of a test case just to drive around Claygate and see how many people uh, that we might kill with our thoughts. What was that called at the, what was it, um, roadkill? <laughs> you know, imagine if our thoughts could do a similar sort of thing. It wouldn't just be squirrels and rabbits on the road, would it? Sorry, you, have, just, you might not understand my logic there. But if it was a horrible thought, isn't it? But it's certain sorts of anger are like murder. Other forms of anger are healthy. Jesus had anger about injustice. Later in chapter 5, Jesus gives us the radical call, verse 44, to love and pray for your enemies. Love and pray for your enemies. And it's probably overstating it, but only this week the Lord challenged me, convicted me to pray for those, his blessing for those who'd caused me hurt and harm. Love and pray for your enemies. Verse 28, when it came to adultery, Jesus suggested that the root is a heart problem which begins with lustful thoughts and feelings. It is quite a difficult one to interpret. I sort of remember reading stuff like this as a child, and it sometimes sort of suppresses what I consider to be good and holy and righteous thoughts. God's made us sexual beings. He's just said that you need to do this in a certain framework, in certain relationships, in a certain way. So to, um, Jesus is obviously right to challenge our lustful thoughts, but what he's not trying to do is to suppress God-given human emotions expressed in a right and safe way. When talking about revenge, verses 38 to 39, Jesus says the solution is not um, to get your own back, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but to turn the other cheek. So we need to accept that all Scripture is God-breathed, and the whole of the Bible has integrity. God doesn't contradict himself. It's how we interpret certain parts of the Bible that is tricky and the challenge for us today. And I'm doing this today because I think we could, with God's help, get better at this. And it might help us with some of the controversial issues that we face as individuals, as society, and as a church. There are three principles that might help. The first question, is the uh, issue being considered part of um, God's overarching story of salvation? So there's big sweeping things to do with justice and to do with mercy and to do with salvation. And um, that's always going to be God's heart to sort of reach out 
and to bring back to himself a lost and broken people. Secondly, is the truth or teaching affirmed in the New Testament, especially by Jesus, or is it still in the Old Testament? So I want to pay particular attention if it's been affirmed in the New Testament, and particularly if it's been affirmed by Jesus, or reinterpreted by Jesus, or fulfilled in Jesus. And thirdly, would my interpretation and application please honour and glorify Jesus? Would my interpretation please honour and glorify Jesus? So I'm more concerned with pleasing God rather than people. Does it take me deeper in my relationship with Jesus? And later on this term, I plan to come back to some of the challenging topics in the Church of England. And whilst I um, believe that um, Scripture is in... I'm not going to be able to get this word. Inerrant. Inerrant. I really believe that. Um, human interpretation isn't always. So we need a lot of grace and a lot of help when dealing with thorny issues. Sometimes, when we take a view on Scripture, it may be unreasonable to ask others to validate it. And I'm not going to go into that. But some things just plainly go beyond our conscience. And I have a few views that would take me beyond my conscience that I'm not going to budge on, but I want to do that with grace and truth. In the final analysis, all are ultimately accountable and answerable to God. Jesus calls us to radical holiness, but also by his own example to radical engagement with all people of different types, with some who were touched by his grace, like the woman at the well, the challenge was to leave her life of sin. The overarching call of the Bible is an invitation to loving union with God. It will mean us learning to care about what Jesus cares about, trying to live the way he lives. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He did this by displaying um, radical holiness, but also radical engagement. He had fellowship with the irreligious, the immoral tax collectors and sinners. When he did, they were changed. After hearing his teaching, witnessing and experiencing healings and deliverance and other miracles, the call of Jesus to them was repentance, to leave their life of sin and to put their faith in him and to follow him. We need the Holy Spirit to breathe in us, to write God's laws in our hearts. Holy Spirit, change our motivations. Holy Spirit, come and transform our thinking. Holy Spirit, come 
and challenge our attitudes. Help us to be aware of the massive planks that are sometimes in our eyes before we try helping others with the specks in theirs and leave the final judgment to God. God's Word, found in the Bible, calls us to radical holiness. Not everything goes. God's Word, found in the Bible, calls us to radical engagement that engagement transformed Jesus met and will be the same for us. Matthew 5, verse 17 again. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Holy Spirit, breathe on us. Holy Spirit, transform us as we come to you and your holy word. May we encounter you afresh in it. Amen.